Well, this morning we're diving into Mighty God as part of the Advent. And um, to open that up, I want to hear from the, we want to hear from the psalmist this morning. This is Psalm 24, 1 through 8. The earth and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants belong to the Lord. For he laid the, its foundations on the seas and established it on the rivers. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not appealed to what is false, and who has not sworn deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who inquire of him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, you gates. Rise up, ancient doors. Then the king of glory will come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Boy, don't you just want to like shout that out? I love that psalm. All right, church, Isaiah chapter 9. Verse 6, back where we were last week, if you missed last week, we're doing an Advent series. Um, the four Sundays that precede Christmas Day are considered the season of Advent, and so it's a time for us to take a focused look not only on the coming of Christ and the, the child that was born in a manger, God in human flesh, but we also want to celebrate all that he did, and we want to recognize that we anticipate and we're awaiting the second Advent, and so we're just celebrating all of the things that are in play for us as believers, and this is a time of year where we can take a really focused look at that and, and meditate on it, devote ourselves to it, and seek to understand in a more in-depth way how much our God, who is mighty, loves us and cares for us and looks after us. When we think of might, or being mighty, what pictures come to mind? I, I loved reading that psalm. I, I gave that, that psalm to, to BJ for this morning, and I was like, it's almost, I, there, there's so much to God. There's so much to him. There's so much balance to who God is. You can't really talk about God accurately without representing all the aspects of his character. And so we want to think of him as being strong and mighty in battle. The, the word even mighty God in Isaiah 9, 6 is speaking of something, a, a person that's like a warrior, but we see so much of the might of God in other things as well that, that we wouldn't really think of in context when we were talking about mighty or warrior or battle. When we think of might or being mighty, what comes to mind for me is something strong. Something or someone who's victorious even, or maybe even someone who's powerful or even noble. Nobility can have a, a type of might to it. I don't know what you guys think about, but those are the types of things you say, like, I am mighty. I think of, like, Arnold. You know, like, uh, that's, a, that's a mighty man, right? <laughs> well, he used to be. Anyway, so certainly those are all expressions of, of we think of the, 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 the things that are powerful and strong and big. Those are things that are mighty, right? And in Jesus' time, to look at the time of Christ, it helps us to understand that aspect as well because the Romans were all about brute strength. The Romans in the Greek world worshipped the human body and the strength of it, and they celebrated the achievements of men. So much so 
that historian Mark Cartwright wrote this star of the show, speaking of the, the Roman general who won a significant battle as he would be given this parade, this procession into Rome. He says, star of the show, the godlike victor would ride a spectacular tall sided chariot pulled by four horses. He wore a laurel, a crown and carried a laurel branch in his right hand. In his left hand, he carried an ivory scepter with an eagle on top, symbolic of his triumph. And you know what's crazy is if you go more in depth to how they would do this, the Romans would have a servant standing behind him whispering in his ear that he was just a man. Isn't that weird? You want to know why? Because it's easy to have a big ego when you're getting all that praise. And, and, and don't, don't think of this for a second, like, all oh, those Romans, they wanted to keep people humble. No, 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 no. They wanted to remind them, you're not Caesar. You're not Caesar. We worship Caesar here. Remember that? The Romans were so twisted when it came to what they saw true might as being this general who would ride into town in this way and everyone's celebrating and, and screaming for how wonderful they are, so much so that they need to have their ego popped by a servant who's speaking in their ear. You're just a guy. How does God display his might? How does God display his might in Scripture? He certainly can display it through the crack of thunder, the shaking of the foundations of the earth, the, the amazing creation of our universe, the signs and wonders he did in Egypt to free his people that were miraculous and overwhelming, or even allowing Isaiah in chapter 6, here in the book that we're studying in, to see him sitting on his throne and the train of his robe filling the temple with the seraphim singing to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. So much so that Isaiah says, I'm undone. I can't, I can't even speak. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live in a people whose lips are unclean. I'm a filthy, horrible creature. The mere sight of God in his glory wrecked Isaiah to the ground. And it was at that moment that everything pivoted for Isaiah because God cleansed him. The Lord made him whole. The Lord atoned for his sin. It was that beautiful picture that we talked about last week. God brought Isaiah to this place of recognition of his brokenness so that he could transform him, so that he could change him. God has revealed his might in pictures such as this, but that isn't the only way. That's not the only way that God reveals his might. In fact, it's not even the most significant way that he revealed his might to us. Oh, it's significant, but it's not the most significant. Because our salvation didn't come to us through a vision of a throne room. How did our salvation come to us? God in a manger. A son was given to us. A child was born for us. That's how God saved our wretched souls. By becoming a human being. And dying on a cross. Bonhoeffer said it this way. A shaking of heads. Perhaps even an evil laugh must go through our old, smart, experienced, self-assured world. When it hears the call of salvation of believing Christians. For a child has been born for us. A son given to us. The wisdom of the world scoffs at it. But that's the might of God. That's the power of God. Is a child in a manger. 
the call of salvation, the declaration of his might, the power of his name all together in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. If you have it open there, you can read it with me. We'll read this section, then we'll focus on just one name that's given to the Messiah. Isaiah 9, verse 6, For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. The zeal of the Lord of armies is to send a child. Is to come as a child to send Jesus, the son, to mankind This morning, as we celebrate the second week of Advent, I want us to focus on the second name given. Last week, we talked about Wonderful Counselor. And this week, we're going to talk about the name given to the Messiah, Mighty God. The child that was born, the son that was given, he is the Mighty God. In the same way that seems foolish to the world that God would be born into this place as a child. And that salvation would come through a son that's given. Think about this in the context of the Greek world. Victories were won by generals with big armies who outmuscled, outsmarted their enemies, who had tactical advantage. Think about how the great victories were won, and God says, this is how I'm going to win my victory, through a baby, through a child. In the same way that it seemed foolish to the world that God would be born in this place as a child, and that salvation would come through a son, it also seems foolish to the world when we think of all the ways that God has shown himself mighty. Not just his might in creation, not just his ability to shake the foundations of this universe, but that he does so humbly. That he is mighty in humility that he is mighty in his gentleness, that he is mighty in his lowliness of heart, that Jesus comes to us and his kindness leads us to repentance. He doesn't smack us upside the head because he is mighty in the lowly ways as well. He teaches us something. Remember last week, we talked about the already, not yet. We talked about how Jesus did come as a child. He was the son that was sent. He has already come. He has already accomplished what the Father sent him to do. And then we recognize there's a not yet aspect to this as well. He has not yet taken his dominion of this world and put the government on his shoulders. He is not yet the world leader that we so long for. And boy, do we need him. Amen? We need Jesus to rule here. And we wait for that second advent. We wait for his return. We can't wait for the government to rest on his capable shoulders and his dominion and his prosperity to never end. However, as we look towards that and we look back, there's already, there's not yet, but here we are, stuck in the middle. Sorry. We're right in between. I don't know where that came from. (laughs) There's always a jingle. But you guys, we're we're just right here. We're right here in the in-between, in the middle. So how do we embrace the understanding of having the mighty God, Jesus, our Savior, right here with us right now? How does this pertain to where we are? How does this pertain to where you're sitting in your life? 
to what's going on in your world right, right now. Right here, December 5th, 2021, how does it impact your life to know that Jesus is the mighty God? I think we have to start with Colossians 127. Because if we don't have this in play, if we don't understand this, and this is for believers, this is for the church, this is for those who have given their lives to Jesus and, and he has transformed us, he has made us a new creation. Colossians 1.27 says this, God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the first part. It's Christ in you now. Church, it's not you doing your thing. It's not you do you anymore. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Jesus, mighty God, within you and I. Can we just geek out on that for a second? The mighty God lives in us. Do you feel very mighty? I feel less mighty after studying this week. Only because I recognize in so many ways I'm like Isaiah. And then he brings me back to what he's done. Then he brings me to what he has done for me, what Christ in me actually means. His might, his power, his ability, everything that he has accessible in my life for his glory. Not mine. Not to do what I want with. Not to bring glory to Mike. But for him. Not only is he my wonderful counselor, we talked about that last week, giving us this miraculous, when, when you're laying at night in your bed and your thoughts trouble you, he is right there, for, ready to counsel. God is not far, God is near, Christ in you, the hope of glory. How often do we feel like God's far away? Like he's light years away. He is high and I am not. He condescended to be with you. To be in you and you in him. The wonderful counselor lives within us, church, and he is mighty. He's powerfully with us. He's not far away. He's within our hearts. What does that mean for us in our day-to-day lives? How does that change me? How do I, how do I walk in that truth? Because I don't know about you guys, I get really discouraged. I get really disappointed walking around this world. I get really frustrated. How does it change me? How can I make this truth that the mighty God lives within my heart an ever-present awareness in my life? It's not that I'm changing the fact if it's real or not. I'm becoming more aware of it. I'm responding to it on a continual basis. There's four ways that I want to point out that he's mighty within us this morning. And this may seem a little odd because it's not the big, buff, powerful, dominating might of God that I want to point out. The first thing that I want to point out that he's mighty in is that he is mighty in our weakness. He is mighty in our weakness. Paul spoke of a thorn given to him. We're very familiar with this text, I think. A thorn in the flesh and... and Many have argued what this could have been. I, le- I tend myself to lean towards some kind of physical ailment that he had. 
some type of physical setback that Paul struggled with. Some have suggested it's his eyesight. Some have said it was a, uh, something else that slowed him down. That's what I lean towards myself, but there's discussion about whether it was an emotional thing or something like that. Either way, a thorn's a thorn. It's not a good thing. Either way, it's something that Paul wanted to be free of that was in his eyes initially when he went to the Lord, he said three separate times, it was hindering him. It was a problem. Anyone got any hindrances? Okay, cool. Just a couple of you. That's great. So you guys, he prayed for God. (laughs) Our honesty meter just went, you guys, (laughs) it's okay. Christmas is coming. So here's the thing. I don't even know what that means. When... When he prayed to God for him to take away this thorn in the flesh, the answer was no. God said no. Why? Second Corinthians chapter 12, verses 8 through 10. Paul says, concerning this, the thorn, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it would leave me. You ever ask God over and over and over again for something to not be there anymore? But he said to me, verse 9, my grace is sufficient for you. Notice. If you're a Bible underliner, underline this. For my power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, Paul responds, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses. Man, don't you want to be there? Don't you want to be in a place where you are, you are boasting in your weaknesses? We try to hide them. We try to make it so people can't see them. I don't want you to see my weakness. I want you to think I got it all together. Right? He says, I'm, I boast in my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. He recognizes that God's power, if it is perfected in my weakness, needs to be put on display. How is it put on display? Through my weakness. That means exactly what John the Baptist said, less of me and more of him. It's less of me and more of Jesus. So I take pleasure, he says in 2 Corinthians 12, 10. I take pleasure, pleasure in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and in difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You know, sometimes it's helpful to really just stare at a verse for a while to stare at a section of scripture. Church, this is what we should be aiming for. Our hearts in this place. Christ being glorified in and through me, through my weaknesses, not my strengths. Think about how often we we get this backwards. And I'm not saying this is wrong, but just this is the mentality we can have. When people want to serve in the church, what do we ask them? Yeah, Bill, Bill nailed it, by the way. What are your strengths? What are you good at? We should all be good at serving. We should all aim to be good at serving one another. I'm not saying I don't want skilled musicians to play music. What I'm saying is that we should all come with a servant's heart and let his power be perfected in our weaknesses together. Because when we are weak, he is strong. It's true that God's glorious power is more evident when it's displayed in weak vessels. When you see something weak and something amazing within it, something powerful and life-altering within it, do you ever look at something and go, that is so contrasting? To see that much frailty with that much power. Jesus, Christ in us. 
the hope of glory. The mighty God is revealed through our weakness. His might is so undeniable. Think about this. You're like, well, I think God, you know, demonstrates his power in, 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 you know, very significant ways. And those are the things that I like to focus on. Church, what is the mightiest act of God that we should be obsessed with? The cross. That was the mightiest act of God. Because it was there that the wrath of God was poured out on God the Son for my sake and for yours. Our salvation was won through a cross, through a Roman cross, through the most shameful, torturous, horrible death of its time. That's where my salvation was won. That's where your salvation was won. It wasn't in God ripping open the earth. The earth ripped open because the wrath of God was poured out on God himself. And we didn't deserve that. We deserve separation. But the mightiest act of God won our salvation, and he did it through brokenness. He did it through death, and he defeated death, kicked it to the ground, and rose again on the third day. Amen? That is our victor. That is the warrior Jesus won by dying. You want to see the mightiest acts of God? Lay your life down. Greater love has no man than he lays his life down for his friends. And Jesus said, I love you guys this much. And he went to the cross to prove it. That is the mightiest act of God. If we can't celebrate that God's might is most visible in weakness, we don't understand the cross. Jesus declared his power and his might by remaining on that cross. By remaining there and giving up his spirit. He took death to task and he defeated it through resurrection. First Corinthians one verses 18 through 19 for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But it is the power of God to us who are being saved. That's pretty dang mighty. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. He says, everything that you think you know about powerful, everything that you think you know about might, you haven't understood it yet. Because the cross is how we celebrate true power. He is mighty in our weakness. And he demonstrated his love to us by becoming broken and weak for us. We'll remember that later as we take communion this morning. Second thing about his might, about the mighty God that I want to point out for us is that he's mighty in our distress. We want to be like Paul, I think. I mean, some of us, some of us in, in, during truth hour may not really want to be that much like Paul, especially when we read his suffering roster from 2 Corinthians 11. You're like, yeah, that's okay. I'm good. I'm good being right here. Thanks. I think in our spirit, we want to be like Paul, that we take pleasure in our distresses and our difficulties. I think in our spirit we do. I think the part of us that doesn't want anything to do with it is our flesh. Because if we truly believe what Scripture said, what we just read, then we want the power of God to be made perfect in our weakness. But our flesh says, no. 
just like that too. Yet it's hard to see how really bad situations can work for good, isn't it? It's really hard to see how God could work this out for good. You ever get in one of those situations like this is impossible. This is not going to work out. Huge mistake. I made a huge mistake. This is never going to, this isn't redeemable. I'm broken. Everything around me is broken. Um, That's it for me. I'm just going to take a dirt nap. That means die. It's so hard, you guys, to see how really bad situations can work for good. (laughs) Dirt nap? Yeah, it's a thing. Okay, you guys, we know he works all things together for the good of us who love him and are called according to his purpose. Amen? He, that's the bad stuff too. That's the distress. That's the bad situations. And yet we struggle with trusting him, don't we? We struggle with the faith side when things get really ugly. I don't know. How am I supposed to pray for this person? God's not listening. He hears you. I don't know what to do with this over here. I can't. It, this person isn't changing or their heart. I don't know what's going on with them. And I've been praying and God's not listening. We struggle with the faith side of it. But he is mighty in our distress. And for that, for an example of this, one of my favorite stories from the New Testament is Acts chapter 16. In the city of Philippi, Paul and Silas get arrested. And I think that looking at this passage is really helpful to see a powerful reminder of what Jesus, the mighty God, does through us when we're obedient and when we're sensitive to his design and purpose. I'm going to build the next three points off this passage. Let's read the first couple verses here. It'll be on the screen. Acts 16, verses 25. I'll read down through 27. It says, about midnight, they've been jailed in the city of Philippi. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. By the way, they had been beaten at this point. They had been beaten harshly, and they were shackled in a cold jail cell. This isn't fun hour. And they're singing. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the jail were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains came loose. When the jailer woke up and saw the doors of the prison standing open, he drew his sword and was going to kill himself since he thought the prisoners had escaped. What a stark contrast of men who know the mighty God and a man who doesn't. Men who know the mighty God are singing when they were beaten. A man who doesn't is ready to off himself when things go awry. Do you see the difference? Are we different? How do we feel when things go awry? How do I react when things aren't going well? When I think I'm in a desperate situation, am I more like the jailer than I am like Paul and Silas? When was the last time you sang in your distress, church? Conviction for Mike. I hope you feel it too. I don't often sing in my distress. That's a that's a problem. That's a problem for me. That's conviction for me. As Paul and Silas sing, God shakes the foundations of the jail. The jailer, when the certain reality that all the prisoners were gone, for sure, they're gone. He just reacts as someone who doesn't know Jesus. All is lost. It's over. He pulls his sword. I may as well die. Why? Because technically speaking, outside of miraculous intervention here, his life is forfeit. Jailbreak is not a good thing for him. That means he didn't do his job. He's probably going to die for this. But Paul and Silas, they weren't just there to sing. And in circumstances that we could easily misunderstand and think that God had brought about a jailbreak on that night, 
that this was a jailbreak. I mean, hadn't he done this already? Some of you are like, there's going to be a jailbreak. There, there, for those of us who think the way that, that, that biblical people often do, when I think shackles breaking, doors opening, I think Peter walking out of jail. I think jailbreak. Clearly this is what the Lord's doing. Was it? No. So first of all, we recognize that God is mighty in our distress. He's able to shake the foundations of the jail, break open the shackles. The doors all come open. He is powerful and mighty in our positions and situations of distress. But there's something else he's mighty in that we really need to be aware of. He is mighty in discernment. Because if they were undiscerning, they, had, they would have walked out of there and the jailer would have lost his life. They would have thought wrongly that what God did was shaking all these things open was to free them. The earthquake, the breaking of the shackles, the doors opening, that wasn't to free them. They were going to get released the next day. That was to free the jailer from sin. This was his salvation moment. And it scares me to read this text often because I think, would I have missed it? Would I have missed this opportunity if I wasn't sensitive and discerning of what was going on. He is mighty in discernment because it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. He has not left us to do this on our own. We have to be sensitive to his leading every moment of every day. Look at verse 27 again. We'll read down through verse 31. When the jailer woke up and saw the doors of the prison standing open, he drew his sword and was going to kill himself since he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul called out in a loud voice, don't harm yourself because we're all here. Not just he and Silas. All the prisoners stayed put. I don't know how Paul did it. Maybe it was the song he was singing. (laughs) Maybe it had something to do with staying put. I don't know. But you guys, here's the thing. Like, they associated what happened in some way with staying in their cells. These prisoners are still there. None of them left. The jailer called for lights. He rushed in. Kind of explains, by the way, why he was ready to kill himself. It's so dark in there, he couldn't see. Calls for lights, rushes in, and fell down trembling, it says in verse 29, before Paul and Silas. He escorted them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? salvation church they said believe in the lord jesus and you will be saved you and your household believe in jesus that's so cool it's such an awesome moment christ in us the hope of glory he enables us to discern through the spirit the path that we walk in this life we have his word we have unceasing prayer to align our hearts with him and i pray church that our ears are always open to the sensitive voice of god saying go here and then right here and then move you guys realize that we're not supposed to just read scripture pray and then go about our business we are to read scripture we are to pray and go about his business i am looking for the opportunities of god all day long every moment that's what he's commissioned me to do all of us that's the life of a christian to be christ-like in every situation to shine salt to shine light and be salt. (laughs) That'd be fun. (laughs) No, like to be salt and shine light into every situation that we're in. Try shining salt. Let me know how that works out. But you guys, 
we need to have our hearts sensitive because it scares me that I might have messed this up. That I wouldn't have been sensitive to what he was actually doing in this moment. In Isaiah 30, further along in the book of Isaiah, the prophet speaking the word of the Lord to Israel about how God is going to show them mercy in the midst of their distress. So he's speaking that part of his mightiness into them saying, listen, I'm going to show you mercy even though you're in distress, even though you've been wrecked. And he's going to lead them, he says, as a teacher. And in verse 21 of Isaiah 30, check this out. Sometimes you've read the scriptures, but you find something you're like, whoa, that's really cool. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 21. Lord says, and whenever you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear this command behind you. This is the way. Walk in it. The Mandalorian took it from scripture. (laughs) Bet you didn't know that. So you guys... (laughs) This is the way. Walk in it. It's so amazing to think about this. In our distress, he shows himself mighty. In our discerning, needing to discern things, he's right there as a teacher saying, this is the way. Walk in it. When you're looking in your life to walk through life and turn to the left or to the right and you don't know what to do, Lord, make me sensitive Make me discerning to hear your spirit say left or right. You you realize as Christians, we come to this place often. I hope that we would all be willing to admit this, that we just don't know what to do sometimes. You're like, and and, and sometimes we get these answers. And I apologize. I never want to do this to you guys. And I hope I don't. When you're like, we don't know what to do. Be like, read your Bible. Is that a wrong thing to say? No. But does that help me discern the path sometimes when I need to be counseled and encouraged and prayed over and I need the spirit to speak to me? You guys, it's a walk. It's not just a slap it on top answer. Is it ever wrong to read the scriptures to seek after God's counsel and will? No, we should be doing that. But sometimes he wants us to trust in him. Sometimes he wants to grow our faith by leaving us in the unknown, showing us our weakness and being powerful in it. And you know what? He gave us each other for that road. We don't have to walk that alone. He gave us each other to walk through those times. And I hope you guys know how much I value the scriptures. Obviously, we teach them verse by verse. This is the holy word of God. And we should be people who give ourselves to unceasing prayer. That doesn't mean we're not going to come to a fork in the road and wonder what to do. God's men and women all throughout Scripture did. Paul was trying to go in every which way, and God was closing doors on him. And finally, God gave him a path. You guys, we need to be listening for that voice of the Lord, standing behind us as a teacher saying, this is the way, walk in it. That encouragement, keep going. You know you're doing the right thing. Or stop, don't go that way. Please, you've been down that road before. He is mighty in our weakness. He is mighty in our distress. He is mighty in discernment. And finally, he is mighty in salvation. Our God is mighty in saving. Back to Acts 16, verses 32 through 34. They spoke the word of the Lord to him, the jailer, along with everyone in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. Right away, he and all his family were baptized. 
He brought them into his house, set a meal before them, and rejoiced because he had come to believe in God with his entire household. The Lord brings salvation to this family through distress, through discernment, and through the preaching of the word. You guys, using the weakness and the distress and the discernment, this family is saved. In the writings of Zephaniah the prophet, chapter 3, he's declaring the restoration of Jerusalem. Zephaniah, on the whole, is a pretty downer of a, of a prophecy. Um, the prophet wrote a lot about the destruction, the punishment of Israel. But in chapter 3, as we often see in the books of the prophets, there's these little rays of hope. These little rays of light that come in and break through. And in chapter 3, he's declaring the restoration of Jerusalem. And verse 17 reads this way. The Lord your God is among you, a warrior who saves. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will be quiet. That means like renew. He will renew you in his love. He will delight in you with singing. God is a warrior, it says. A warrior who saves fascinating that word warrior in the hebrew is the word gabor do you know how it's translated in isaiah 9 verse 6 mighty same word it's the same hebrew word used for the might of god calling him a warrior but notice he's a warrior who saves and rejoices over you with gladness he will quiet, be quiet in his love for you. He will delight in you with singing. Our God is a God who saves. He's a God who's mighty in our weaknesses. He's a God who works in the midst of our distress, gives us discernment when we need it. And by his power, and his amazing work within our lives, he saves people even through shattered, cracked jars of clay like us. Jesus was born in a essentially a barn. And they laid him in a feeding trough, which is a filthy place to lay a child. He wasn't born into comfort, cleanliness, royalty, riches. The wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the eternal father, the prince of peace, didn't plan, and I say plan very specifically, plan to enter this world into comfort. He planned to enter it in discomfort and he remained in discomfort his entire human existence. Why are we trying to be comfortable then? Why are we looking for comfort? Why do we idolize comfort and all of the things that we long for when Jesus planned and purposed to be low and broken and to die? We talk about wanting to be made into the image of Christ. To be conformed into the image of Jesus. To be just like him. I just want to be like Jesus. 
Church, I think that is what our spirit longs for. Are we ready to crucify our flesh so that it can be so? Are we ready to die to our flesh so that it can be so? Our desire should be this. I've read this to you before. The prayer of St. Francis. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. Grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. I hope that's our prayer. I hope that's our heart reflecting our Savior. We didn't come to this place to be exalted. We have come to this world to be humble, to glorify God by enjoying him forever. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up, and we're going to take communion this morning. And I think it's just a perfect opportunity for us, um, as often the, the, the setting is just right for us to remember Jesus this morning to remember that the greatest demonstration of his might for our sake was to die on the cross and save us from our sin, to do the thing that we who were dead in our trespasses and sin could never have done, none of us. Those who are dead cannot save themselves. Those who are dead have to completely rely upon someone else to do the saving, and that someone else has to be able to bring something dead back to life. Jesus. He did it. As he explained to his disciples in the upper room, as they sat at the table, he introduced communion to them and he took the bread and he said, this is my body. He says, broken for you. As often as you eat this, I want you to remember me. He took the cup afterwards. He said, this is the New Testament of my blood. He said, as often as you drink it, I want you to remember me. So church, very intentionally, we're going to take time and we're going to remember him. We're going to have the table up here. The cups are set inside of each other, so the juice is on top and the bread's underneath it. You can just take one of them. You're free to come up whenever you feel led. But I want to encourage you to take a moment as we get set to sing together just to search your heart. And I'm going to do the same to see if my posture before the Lord is humility if it's Christ-like. To confess my sin. And to know, church, as Christians, that when we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then we can remember with a clear mind and a clear heart his overwhelming sacrifice for our sake. Let's bow our heads. I'm going to pray. And then you'll be free to come up and take communion. Lord, as we go to a time of worship, as we are not attempting in any way to make this about ourselves, Jesus, we just simply want to hear 
you speak into our hearts the things, Lord, that you want to say, that you need to say to us. If there is sin that is unconfessed, Lord, we, we ask that you convict. Lord, if there is if there is a misunderstanding on our part of your power, your ability, in the place where we are right now, would you correct us? And so, God, I, I just ask for um, humility for us all. We thank you, Lord, that you are the God who created the universe, that there is no principality or a power that is over you, that you are sovereign. There is strength and power in that, Lord, but we thank you that you have shown your might to us. Lord, through the cross. That's how you saved us. So we're humbled by that, God. We want to have your mind, your heart, your sight, your ears, your mouth. As your body, Lord, would you just shape us this morning? Would you use this time to renew and strengthen us? Fill us with your joy, Lord. We can rejoice in communion because it's a reminder that you saved us. Not of works, none of us can boast, but by your grace, you saved us.